What is up, my dudes? Welcome to another episode of Olympia Oddities. Nailed it that time. Um, so the pre-show notes for this episode actually pertain to the episode in question. A rarity, but it's actually happening, guys. So first of all, I want to explain the use of Satanism in this story. So I never want to be one of the people who's contributing to people ragging on Satanism or the built-up, scary, demonic image of what Satanism is. Um, since I was, like, 15 or 16, I've incorporated elements of, like, Levian Satanism into my own spirituality, and it's been one of the most positive aspects of my life. Um, chances are, even if you're the most, like, uh, upstanding citizen, church-going Christian, you probably know someone who's in the broom closet or, you know, like, uh, Wiccan or witchcraft or anything that the general mainstream public would consider spooky. You probably know someone who celebrates that, whether or not they're open or not. And for the- I mean, in my opinion, most of us are pretty harmless, uh, pretty much indoor-type creatures who, uh, like reading books and, uh, just sitting around for the most part. Uh, maybe the occasional nature walk. Um, your average Satanist is not out there sacrificing a goat, corrupting the minds of children, Aussie attending concert. I can't even say that because I've been to an Aussie concert. But you know what I mean. Just the typical image of, like, the demonic, dark, evil Satanism is not true. And I really encourage anyone who's not familiar with it to look it up and read the commandments for themselves or the tenets or whatever they're called and just see how... Um really based in a, like a good set of morals in my opinion that they are but like I said do your own research come to your own conclusions but I for one am not going to be celebrating or uh participating in the further demonization should I say of satanism in this episode but I have to include satanism as an element in the story because um church and the christian religion are super tied into this um it came around the perfect timing that the satanic panic was happening. If you're not familiar on that, you can Google it. Um, last podcast on the left has amazing episodes on it. I definitely recommend that. Um, but if I left that element out, I would be leaving out a very, very important part of this story. And this timing, it was just a perfect uh, like catalyst for everything to happen in this story. And it's a very important detail, so I will be including it. And I do want to give a warning that there's going to be sexual and physical abuse of children covered in this episode, as well as touching on abortion. I'm not going to go deep into the details, but mentioning it is important to tell the story. So if violence against children or sexual assault is something that you're sensitive to, uh, it's a warning and totally feel free to skip this episode. I don't mind at all. And my sources for this were Wikipedia, as usual. Um, and I took chunks of this from the Ingram Organization website and some from religioustolerance.org, which, despite the weird name, had a really, gr a really good write-up on this case. Um, I had a lot of difficulty trying to put this into, like, an understandable story format, so I took chunks of this from those sources that I mentioned. And I usually wrap up my episodes by giving my opinion on what happened, but stories like these are really difficult. As a sexual assault survivor myself, I always want to believe the victim. I think last podcast on the left said it the best in their satanic government episodes when they said something like, if even 1% of the details of these stories turn out to be true, it's absolutely horrific what these people went through.
On the other hand, when there's a lack of evidence, the allegations originally came from someone completely outside the family, and the police work done is questionable, it makes everything that much more difficult and blurry to understand. So today, we're going to be covering the Thurston County Satanic Ritual Abuse Trial of 1988. Paul Ingram was the county Republican chairman of Thurston County, Washington, and the chief civil deputy of the sheriff's department. His family were, was dedicated members of the Church of Living Water. Two very important details from this church helped feed the fire of this case. One, that Satan could cause a person to commit terrible acts and then wipe their memory clean afterwards. And two, that any memories recovered would be accurate. God would prevent people from recovering false memories. Everything began when Sandy and Paul Ingram decided to send their kids to a retreat put on by the church. These retreats were called Heart to Hearts. At one of these retreats, Erica Ingram was found sobbing in a corner by herself by Carla Franco, a minister who often spoke at retreats and claimed that she had the gift of prophecy. She walked up to Erica and began to speak to her, soon telling her that the Holy Spirit told her that she was the victim of sexual abuse done by her father. Erica just nodded her head. As Franco put it, I'm the one who opened the can of worms, and all I know is what the Lord told me. At the time of the accusations, Erica was 21 and her sister Julie was 18. In 1983, Erica had previously accused a man of rape, but the investigation revealed that he had given her a ride home and put his hand on her leg. So, still creepy, but a long way from rape. In 1985, Erica had accused a neighbor of sexual assault, but the charges were dropped due to inconsistencies in her story. So in, eight, er, in 1988, Erica and Julie accused their father, as well as his group of poker buddies, of sexual assault. Most of the group were also fellow police officers in Thurston County. Paul was arrested and questioning began while the girls began seeing a therapist who used recovered memory therapy. Paul acknowledged that he knew of the accusations, but couldn't explain them. All he knew that was that he was repulsed by the idea of molesting anyone, much less his daughters, but that, as he put, I didn't raise my daughters to lie. Paul had willingly agreed to talk without an attorney, and throughout the interrogation, he kept on insisting that he could not remember ever doing anything with which he was charged. The, de or the, detec the detectives told him it was common for an abuser to not remember, and if he just started to confess anyways, the memories would return. Paul asked for his pastor, John Brayton. Brayton had been counseling the girls and told Paul that the abuse did happen, and Paul was 80% evil. Broughton conducted an exorcism with Paul to rid him of the, de the demons that Broughton believed were shielding Paul's memory. Broughton told Paul if Paul prayed to the Lord for his memories to return, the Lord would not give him a memory that wasn't true. He used Jesus' analogy about the Holy Spirit from Luke 11.11 11 to 11.12 to make his point. Just as a father wouldn't give a stone to a child who asked for bread, so, the so God would honor Paul's prayer. Paul prayed diligently, and in his mind, he began seeing flashes, pictures, images, images of him abusing Erica and Julie. The detectives continued to encourage Paul to visualize a detailed picture of the alleged incidents. They asked him to, to describe a room, and he complied. They asked him to mentally find a calendar on the wall, provide a date of the alleged incident, and he would. They asked him to visualize a watch or a clock, and what time it was, and he would provide a time for them. Paul compliantly gave them as much detail as they asked for, and, for the, and this was for events that were allegedly as much as 20 years old. He described the alleged abuse scenes in subjective terms. I would have done this, as though he were an observer. I see this, or boy, I feel like I'm making this up, or I feel like I'm, make, I'm watching a movie. The detectives, pastor, and therapist all assured Paul that these were accurate memories of real history.
Meanwhile, Erica and Julie's accusations grew even more wild, naming more people and claiming that they were forced to participate in over 800 rituals. They also claimed that they had gotten pregnant several times and were given abortions by their father. They also described an instance of the ritual members taking one of the fetuses, chopping it up, and eating it. They were unable to remember much of the actual ceremonies, just that there was chanting, and couldn't remember details whether or not they were sitting or standing during them. Both girls claimed that their bodies were covered with scars from the long-term abuse. Julie claimed that she was so scarred she couldn't change her clothes in front of people in her gym class because she would be embarrassed. Erica said she spent half my life in hospitals because of the abuse and that doctors were shocked at all of her scars. When doctors told them, or when the detectives told them that there was no way the abuse could have been that pervasive, severe, and long-term without their mother knowing, they accused Sandy. Two of the other men that they had accused, Jim Raby and Ray Reich, were arrested. Raby was arrested because of a date that Paul was able to provide from one of his memories. When Raby was able to prove that he was out of the country on a date that Paul had visualized, the detective simply went back to Paul and told him to visualize a different date. Raby and Reich's attorneys convinced the court to order medical examinations for both girls. The medical report showed that the girls' bodies had only one scar between them, Erica's well-documented appendectomy scar. Also, neither girl made any mention of Raby's rope-like, three-inch-wide, collodial, large red scar across his chest, the result of a massive electrical shock that nearly killed him 20, 20 years previously when asked if they remembered any tattoos or scars on their abusers' bodies. A medical exam showed no evidence of abortions and no marks on either daughter except for Erica's small scar that was caused by an operation to, move, to remove an ovarian cyst, though some sources say it's from the inflamed appendix. According to Detective Laura Lee Thompson's report, on April 20th, 1989, I asked Erica to show me where she had been cut on her stomach by uh, the defendants. She lifted her sweater and pointing to the midline area between her sternum and navel, I was not able to observe any scarring. I stretched the skin slightly to ensure that the scar was not covered by any body hair. I was still unable to see any scar. Paula Davis was also in the room. She stated that she thought she could observe a slight line. I noted that Erica's torso skin was slightly darker than her face. She confirmed that she had recently been visiting a tanning booth. Later on the same date, I checked Julie's shoulders, the clavicle area, and the upper arms for scars. I saw no marks or scars. As she was wearing a tank top, I moved the shoulder of the garment so I could see all of the shoulder area. I asked Julie if she thought she had scars in the area. She indicated that she did not. Paul also confessed to cutting the bleeding heart out of a live cat, to killing a prostitute in Seattle in 1983, sorry, sex worker, and to being involved in the Green River killings. The Green River Task Force studied Paul's statement, but found nothing that matched the facts of the case. Back with the sheriff's department, the girls drew maps, marking locations uh, where they had said that they had witnessed more than 30 murders and the subsequent burial of the corpses. The sheriff's department hired an anthropologist to, ex to excavate the Ingram properties. None of the far-reaching, intensive investigation turned up a shred of physical evidence corroborating the girls' accusations or Paul's memories. Anthropologist, Dark, er, <laughs> Anthropologist Dr. Mark Papworth's lone find was one cow or elk bone. The county used helicopters with specialized night vision equipment in an attempt to catch the Satanists in the act in nearby wooded areas. They were successful, however, in busting a lot of beer parties. One detective was so spooked that he couldn't sleep at night without a light. Another investigator began to carry a crucifix for protection. 
At one point, a forensic archaeologist, Dr. Mark Papworth, said to Under Sheriff Neil McClanahan that there was no evidence. On this one occasion, I said, Neil, there's no evidence. None. At all. Zero. And he said to me, if you were the devil, would you leave any evidence? And I, my hair stood up on end, and I realized at that point there was no talking to him beyond that, and I excused myself. The prosecutors hired Dr. Richard Offshee to help them with the case. Dr. Offshee is a world-class memory researcher and a specialist in the tactics of coercion. Coercion? There we go. Offshee designed a test. He confirmed with Ingram's son and his two daughters that at no time had their father forced them to have sex with each other. He asked their father whether he had done such an act. He also denied it. Then Offshee asked him to go back to his cell and think and pray about it. Ingram did this. He entered a trance-like state, generated a detailed scenario about how he might have forced his children to have sex with each other, composed a multi-page confession, and signed it. This convinced Dr. Offshee that Ingram was delusional. Paul was completely unaware of Offshee's report that he made when his attorney, Gary Preble, who had limited criminal law experience, allowed Paul to plead guilty. The day Paul pled guilty, Preble told the Ingram family, I think in five years the Ingram family will wake up and realize that none of this ever happened. Despite trying to withdraw his guilty plea, Paul was charged with six counts of rape and he went to prison for 20 years. He was released in 2003. No charges were ever pursued against anyone else Erica and Julie had accused, including Raby and Reich, who spent 158 days in custody before charges were dropped days after Paul pled guilty. Erica sued the sheriff's department, accusing them all of being Satanists because they dropped the charges against Raby and Reich. The Ingram investigation was the most expensive in Thurston County history, costing close to $1 million. The head pastor of the Church of Living Water, Rong Long, transferred to another church and today ministers in Hesperia, California, with Carla Franco, who works with children and still prophesizes. Pastor Broughton lost his job and began working in a local grocery store. He has since moved to California. Sandy left the area with her her youngest son, Mark. Even though the girls accused her as a molester of children, she was allowed to raise him. Erica has made the round of tabloid talk shows supported and encouraged by Christian shock radio host Bob Larson. Thank you for listening to this episode of Olympia Oddities. I'd like to recommend the video Paul, the secret story of Olympia's satanic sheriff for those interested in this case who want more information. It's up on Vimeo and it's really well done and it's really interesting. Um, Feel free to like the Facebook page at Olympia Oddities Podcast for updates and pictures that go along with the episodes uh, or follow me on Instagram at Trista Jean if you want. Uh, bye, and until next time.